If you have your Bible, I hope you will open it to 1 Peter chapter 2. Over the last few weeks of listening to the letter, we've been reminded of who we are. Christians are those who belong to God. We're God's beloved, His adopted children. We've been raised from the dead and ransomed by God, bought back by Him so that we can worship and serve Him in the ways that we're made. And as we heard last week, we have this remarkable privilege of being God's priests. We've been called by Him to radiate His presence into the world and to bring our little corners of the world, each of us, as priests, are given the privilege of bringing our little corner of the world, whether it be our work, our family, our volunteering, our school, we're called to bring all of it into His service. And all we do, we are God's priests, mediating His presence in the world. All of this is utterly amazing. I hope you'll take time to relish it. God loves you, and He's redeemed you. You're his child. This is why Peter starts the passage today with this name for us, beloved. This is who you are. You're God's beloved. But there's more to our identity than this. That's what Peter's been telling us. We are also sojourners, exiles in the world. Our relationship to God has made us aliens in a sense. Because as wonderful as the world is, we long for it to be fully redeemed. On top of just the general brokenness we experience in the world, death, disease, depression, there's also the fact that people of faith increasingly face the brunt of a world that thinks we're crazy. Commitment to a traditional form of faith, traditional morals, is increasingly considered outdated. There's this claim that the world has found better ways to be human now, better ways to find meaning and purpose in the world. But Christians know this simply is not true. The world will never be able to offer us meaning and purpose in our lives, not on its own. So we have to understand this part of our identity. If we don't see ourselves as God's children, but also as strangers and exiles, we're going to be frustrated and confused trying to live as Christians here. People of passionate faith. So this is who we are. We're God's children, but we're also exiles. Peter spent nearly all his time up until now building up this identity, telling us who we are. But now... He's going to start telling us how to live and relate in the world as Christians and as sojourners and exiles. A world in which we're at home, but we're not at home. A world in which we're in waiting. So the first thing Peter tells us is to be holy. This is verses 11 and 12. As sojourner, excuse me, verses 13 and 14. As sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, your desires, if you leave them to themselves, will eat away at who you're really made to be. There's a sense that the world is right when the world says that who you really are is deep down inside you. There's a sense in which the world is right. This is what Peter says. It will eat away at the you who is inside of you, who you're made to be. 
But contrary to what the world says, if you follow all your heart's desires, you actually won't find yourself. That will eat away at who you really are. You'll lose your true self. So to find true freedom, Peter says, you actually have to control yourself. You have to be holy. So let me ask you this from the start. How are you doing with this? Are you saying no to yourself sometimes? Are you controlling your passions and your desires? If you're not, you're going to find yourself getting eaten away at. You're going to find yourself not knowing who you really are, losing a sense of your identity rather than really finding it. Now, sometimes when you do this, say when you abstain from uh, uh, sexual looseness of our culture and you don't endorse mainstream beliefs and attitudes, if you call these out as wrong, others might call you a prude, close-minded, and mean. And Peter anticipates this. He says sometimes Gentiles are going to call you evildoers because of your faith. And don't be surprised. Even then, Peter says, keep your own conduct honorable in front of them. And one day, what will happen is people will say, wow, the Christians were right the whole time. Now, we're going to move quickly into the next section, the the really fun section. Now, here's what Peter's doing. He takes three of the most tension-filled areas of our lives and he tells us how to be holy in them. It's as if they're, they're kind of case studies. How do you be holy in particular situations in life? Can you imagine Peter having chosen three more controversial examples? Politics, slavery, and marriage? I, I, the past Church of the Incarnation and... Uh, Church of the Holy Cross, we often preach the same passage on uh, Sundays. So during the week, those of us who are preaching will just talk back and forth. How are you doing? What are you seeing in the passage? That sort of thing. And the end of the week, one of the pastors, I won't disclose the name, sent a text message that said, me preaching this passage. And it was a meme of this character running and bombs going off all behind them. <laughs> Politics, boom. Slavery, boom. Marriage, boom. Peter is intentionally choosing these difficult areas of life. And in this way, he's saying to us, your holiness, it isn't only about reading your Bible, doing your quiet time. It isn't only about praying and other religious activities, even though those things are essential, very important. You are not allowed to withdraw from the world, no matter how much you want to. You can't. Your holiness is an engagement with the world. But what does holiness look like? Well, each example Peter gives has two things in common. So the people he's talking to in each case are relatively powerless. Think about it. Who can overthrow an emperor? No one. What power do slaves have? None. And women were often treated as less than human. They have no power. But in each of these scenarios, Peter gives the same instruction. In verse 13, be subject to the government. In verse 18, be subject 
to unjust masters. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Let's get this out there from the beginning. All of this sounds extremely passive and even morally wrong on one level. Why should we allow ourselves or others to be mistreated and oppressed? This is the question people ask, isn't it? Is the Bible just outdated here? Or is this one of those places where once we find out the context, we'll get a sigh of relief? So there's an older uh, a pastor, well-experienced and faithful in ministry, who tells the story of when he was younger, he preached on uh, a section from the Gospels. And then after the service, he's leaving, and it was one of those situations where the pastor goes to the back, you know, and tells, they shake the pastor's hands on the way out. Hand, not hands. And um, the, one of the parishioners says to the pastor, Boy, I was getting really nervous when you read that passage that and those things Jesus were saying, but by the end, you made me feel so much better. We like that, right? When what Jesus is saying isn't really that uncomfortable. Is it going to be that way here? I think we need to listen to Peter very carefully. So the center of this passage is when he talks about Jesus. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. He's reflected on the cross for 20 years now. He's the disciple who said to Jesus, you can't go to the cross, I will not let you. But it happened. And now he's reflected on the cross for 20 years. He's preached about Jesus for 20 years now. He's found himself in and out of trouble for it, bearing his own version of the cross. The cross has become the center of Peter's thinking. Listen again to what Peter says about Jesus in this passage. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you've been healed, Peter says. This is an incredibly rich passage of Scripture that we could mine for weeks. It's one of those that we should meditate on constantly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here are just a few important pieces of this passage this morning. First, the things done to Jesus were the most unjust and wicked acts the world has ever seen. Here was the one man who deserved nothing but praise and gratitude from humanity, and people rejected him, beat him up, and killed him. And in his innocent death, Jesus stood in for all of us. For me, for you, for all of humanity. He stood in and He bore the brunt of our sin. He took it. He died for it. And He crushed it. And now, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the point for Peter around which everything in the world revolves. You see what's happened? 
Jesus has died for sin and conquered it. And now the center of the world revolves around this act. The cross. And we are called to follow Him. He left us an example so that we might follow in His steps. See, we are called to follow Jesus and our sufferings are part of His sufferings. Peter's putting this together in a really mysterious way. Our sufferings somehow become part of Christ's sufferings. Part of the way God's redeeming the world. Peter's saying when we choose to submit ourselves to unjust powers... This isn't a way of giving in to oppression. It's not. Instead, just like Jesus, we're stopping a cycle of hatred and violence that has persisted throughout humanity. We're fighting for the kingship of Jesus when we submit ourselves. So when we accept a blow, when we take on a slanderous remark from someone, but we choose not to return it, we join with Jesus. In the fight against evil. It might seem small to you, but it's still something. It's a way of siding with Jesus and the way of Jesus. Peter's telling us that every road in the Christian life leads to and through the cross. So back to our original question, what does holiness look like? Regardless of the context, holiness looks like Jesus. It looks like the way of the cross. Now, do you really believe this? Think about it. Do you really believe that your holiness is supposed to look like the way of the cross in every aspect of your life? That the sufferings that can feel like something that you should resist could somehow be used by God in the advancement of His kingdom and His way in the world? Do you believe this? This is what Peter's saying. Now, we do need to acknowledge that when Peter says to subject yourself to this authority, whatever it may be, or submit, he's not calling us to behave like whip puppies. That's not what he's doing. This isn't a weakness on the part of those who submit themselves. In fact, it takes remarkable strength to do this. Listen again to what he said about Jesus. In verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Our ability to suffer like Jesus only comes from having our identity fully in God. Our hope set fully on God knowing we are sojourners and aliens more than we are Americans or anything else. We are gods, His chosen ones. Now, I'm not going to take a whole lot longer, but with the few minutes we have, I want us to look at these three examples Peter gives us. Holiness is the way of Jesus. So what does it look like to be holy as citizens? In relationship to authorities, holy as servants to bosses, and holy as spouses. So first, as citizens, here's what Peter says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, 
we can assume that Peter knew the authorities he's dealing with are unjust. The authorities these people are dealing with are unjust. And we can also assume that Peter knows there are limits to how much they can listen to these authorities. This is the same guy who was told by authorities no longer to mention the name of Jesus. And this is what Peter said in return. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Peter's not saying there aren't limits. We're also nearly positive that Peter was later executed under Emperor Nero, that he was possibly even crucified like Jesus. So what does Peter mean that we are to be subject to authorities? So before and after Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, there were bands of people, many of them Jews, Messianic people, just like Jesus claiming to be uh, the Messiah. And they would try to lead these armed revolts, revolutions, right? And nearly all of them were in the name of God. So the authorities are understandably suspicious of these Christians. Their movement is growing. When are they going to try their own revolt? But Peter's telling the Christians, it should not be the same with you. Your Lord didn't lead a violent rebellion. He showed us an entirely new way of being human, a different type of revolution. You know, it's fascinating that we hear of no early Christians trying to stage a violent revolt against, the, uh, against Rome. When we look through history, we hear of no attempts by Christian groups to try to stage a rebellion against Rome. What we do hear of are many Christians being willingly executed because they will not deny the name of Jesus. Yet still... Despite all the executions, all the attempts to stamp it out, to stomp it out, Christianity created a revolution that was better and longer lasting than any revolution in history. This is what Peter is saying. This is a different way to do a revolution. You see, the point Peter's making isn't only about submission, that we lay down while people walk over us. That's not all it is. Listen to verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The goal of our submission is that the consistent goodness and love of Christians outflanks all the criticisms. How do we receive this today? I think there are two important points for us to reflect on. One of these points is we're all Americans. And there has been lots of good done in and through our country, hasn't there? Wonderful things of freeing and liberating others who are under oppression. But it can become easy as Americans to believe that the only way to freedom is through a form of violence. Because all those who have been liberated, someone else had to be conquered. And the cross is calling us to consider another possibility. 
I truthfully don't know all that this means, but I think that God would have us reflect on the cross more as a different way of doing revolution, as a different form of freedom. Is the cross normative for us? Do you believe Jesus can give us life on this way of the cross? Is the cross powerful enough to sustain our lives and our freedoms? Peter is saying it is. It's true freedom. Now second, when Peter talks about doing good that will silence the ignorance of foolish people, he isn't only talking about our piety, going to church, prayer, He's talking about the way that our faith manifests itself publicly. We do good. We care for the poor. We care about the well-being of our community. We're not withdrawn, aloof from the world. We're engaged. So people were suspicious of these Christians, right? They behave so differently. Something must be wrong with them. We need to be careful because eventually they might be staging their own revolt. But then... They'd look around at all the ways the Christians were blessing their town. The Christians had strong families. The Christians were involved in public events as often as they could be, and it wasn't offensive to their faith. The Christians were public benefactors to the community in that they would buy things. Wealthy Christians would contribute to the life of the community. They might buy ball fields if that was something that they could do. So people would look around at all the ways Christians were blessing their town, contributing toward the common good, and the good works outflanked the criticisms. Well, there is something different about them, but they're not that bad. They're doing some really good things for our community. This is the call on us too. As individuals, as Church of the Lamb, we're called to this engaged form of holiness so that our good works dispel doubts and prove that God is among us. This is why our church has tried to do things like the Eltmobile, the literacy program during the summers, uh, the the Bluegrass concert we did a few weeks ago, and things like Town Talks to show in some way that we care about this place and to seek, even through trial and error, to find real ways to bless place that God has put us. So are you blessing your community through your life here? Or are you withdrawn? We're called to contribute toward the well-being. So our submission in the way of Jesus, our doing good, is one way God wishes to advance His kingdom through us. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on the next two examples that Peter gives, but we do need to know in one sense that the presence of slaves and women in the church was proof of their good works. It was proof because both slaves and women were viewed as less human. Unwanted babies were often left to exposure and they would die. So women would rush to Christians because they knew that Christians would receive them and care for their children. So many women became Christians in the early church while their husband, husbands remained non-Christians. So as Peter is writing this letter, the makeup of the churches would usually include many more women than men because the church cared for the vulnerable. 
But also, slaves and women married to non-Christians have the most difficult and powerful opportunities for evangelism. That's why Peter's addressing them. This in itself is the start of a revolution. Because Peter speaks directly to groups who outside of the church are considered barbarians, less than human. Yet he speaks to them directly. To slaves, he doesn't just call them slaves, he calls them members of the household, servants of God's household. And to women, who would infrequently be actually talked to directly by men, he addresses them publicly and he gives them dignity. There are attacks on passages like this oftentimes because Peter doesn't outrightly condemn the system of slavery. And on the other end of the spectrum, these passages have been used to legitimate slavery and inequality of women. And both of those sides entirely miss the point. Because the point is that Jesus started this revolution. Early Christians had no concept that slavery could be abolished or women could be seen across the board as equal to men. But they continued the revolution by caring for these groups, by welcoming them in and making them equal members within the church. This is the one place where they could come and feel fully human. Now, what do these scriptures call us to? Well, they call all of us as workers and spouses, and I mean men and women, because this was a different time in which Peter is speaking to women who are being abused, whose spouses are not uh, Christians. But in our context, I think it applies to men and to women. We are called into a kind of subversive submission. Here's what I mean. We don't lay down like dogs. We're God's people, so we trust Him. We willingly practice submission to unjust bosses or spouses while trusting in God. And again, just like our submission to government, the goal is that others will see our conduct and they'll turn closer to God because of it. Of course, there are limits on this too. These women and slaves have become Christians while their husbands, masters, haven't. And so their primary Lord is Jesus. They will have limits to what they can submit to. But some of you are in marriages or jobs that it's hard for you to believe that it could, this could be God's plan. That this type of suffering could be God's plan for you. And I don't know your situation entirely. But could it be God has called you to a measure of suffering? To serve a boss or spouse in a new way for the sake of Jesus? Remember that Jesus took up His cross for you and He can enable you to do the same thing. You can suffer much more than you think you can through the power of Jesus. When you do this, You will become a deeper person and the kingdom of Christ will advance through you. Notice the way that Peter lifts up women in this passage. That they will be a daughter of Sarah. A woman of deep faith. A woman that has no fear. But who bears witness to God. Now husbands, 
you get the last word. And not in a good way, though. Peter speaks to husbands last. I have no doubt that some of the wives, many of the wives in our group can hold their own. But husbands are called to take special care for their wives. And especially for their wives' weaknesses, the places that wives can be undervalued for their work, belittled. Our society has not yet found a middle way between patriarchy and this extreme feminism that treats men the way that women used to be treated. Men, it's our job to love our wives in such a way that they don't have to go looking for dignity in other places. But when we love them, they feel that God loves them. They receive dignity. As Peter says, there's some mysterious connection between how we love our wives and our prayer life. It's interesting. They're so closely linked that if you don't love your wife, you won't be able to pray. And yet at the same time, I bet you if you don't pray, you won't be able to love your wife. Men, this is so important. If we don't love our lives, our lives will be diminished. And it will be a sad failure at the end. Now, the death and resurrection of Jesus has become the point around which everything else in the world revolves, including our holiness. Jesus has paid for our sin. He's given us new life. You're His child. But every road for the Christian at some point leads to and through Jesus' cross. Yet, at the same time, the cross always leads to the resurrection. So we should not be unsettled by the crosses we're called to bear. Is your identity found in the one who is crucified? the Lord who was crucified for you? Are you trusting Jesus to sustain you on your own path of suffering? Now remember, this is not some morbid obsession with pain. Is Kevin a sadist? He wants to talk about suffering all the time. That's not it. God intends to use our suffering and good works here as the way of moving His kingdom forward in the world. So let's close with this. Can, can we pray like this? May the world see the good works of Church of the Lamb. And through those good works, might they glorify God. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.